You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, now let's turn to that psalm that we've just been reading, singing together, Psalm 127, which is the eighth of the songs of ascent that we've been studying together here at St. Peter's these last Sunday evenings. Uh, Even if you are not an American, you may well know that Charleston in South Carolina is a favorite vacation spot with many Americans. Uh, It is a beautiful old southern uh, seaside city uh, in South Carolina. And uh, Annapolis, if I remember from being there, is full of Navy personnel. And so uh, we need to pray for our friends when they return home because they will be engaged in conversation by people who will say, "Where, where did you go on your vacation? And they will say, well, we went to Charleston. And uh, their friends, not knowing that there is a beautiful vacation spot uh, in the Dundee area called Charleston, will wax eloquent about Charleston, and then our friends will have a wonderful opportunity to witness to Christ, uh, won't they? Uh, Because they'll say, not that Charleston, let me tell you uh, about the original Charleston and the needs there. And... uh, We went there not to gather um, trinkets in the stores, but to gather lost sheep to Jesus Christ. There is a way to the gospel from everywhere, including Charleston. Well, Psalm 127, a song of ascents, the title reads of Solomon, just possibly for Solomon but it's been translated here, of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children, a reward from Him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. Now, these 15 Psalms, 120 through 134, are unique in the Psalter in this sense that they all have virtually the same title. They're all described as songs of ascent. And while written by different individuals in different periods and going through different experiences, they have been brought together Uh, in a kind of small hymn book or psalm book uh, for pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem for the great pilgrim feasts and probably also for singing. Uh, Those of you who 
in old days went to the Keswick Convention when you didn't see the songs on the screens as here, and you remember that there was a hymn book that was used. It was called the Keswick Hymn Book. It had been brought together. It didn't have every hymn in hymnody. It had been brought together, selected by people who thought, now these will be the kinds of hymns that will be really helpful to people during the Keswick Convention. And in many ways, for God's people in the Old Testament, these pilgrim feasts were very analogous to the kind of conventions or conferences that many of us may go to for a few days, not only for holidays, but so that they may become holy days and that we may receive the blessings of the means of grace, the worship of God's people, their fellowship, the mutual communion, the sense of the presence of God, the ministry of the Word, the touching of our affections, and the mutual instruction that takes place through our singing. And we've been noticing as we've read through these psalms on Lord's Day evenings that the 15 psalms are not just randomly put down in the Psalter. There are little designs, just as uh, one of the, the losses to the church of having screens is that there are no categories to what we are singing, whereas in hymn books there were categories that helped us to understand the significance of what we were singing. So, in the same way, whoever edited these psalms together in the great edition of the Psalter was very shrewd in the way in which he designed the order of the psalms. There is actually a kind of progress in them, as we've noticed. And that progress is like the progress you make climbing a spiral staircase. The psalms seem to divide into little groups of three, the first in the group beginning with a situation of need and distress. And then the psalmist is brought out of it into praise, and then there is a, then there is a new light on his or her need, this pilgrim. And then there is the resolution. And there are other fascinating little elements of design in this uh, little psalm book. Uh, there are 15 of them. There is one Solomon psalm, and it stands right in the middle, perhaps representative of the fact that you have come to Jerusalem in order to meet with God in the one place on earth he has said that his heart will ever be directed towards, the great temple in Jerusalem which Solomon built. And on both sides of that central psalm, there are two David psalms. David, who was the one who devised the enterprise and handed the responsibility for it over to his son Solomon. And so, the very way in which they are crafted seems to turn the believer's thoughts to Jerusalem, to David, the blessing and promise of God to Solomon and the building of the temple. And also on both sides of this central psalm, the Lord's covenant name is used 
12 times. Now, if you're a mathematician, you can work out the statistical probability of that happening by accident. So, all these little neat designs and an overarching theme. What was the high point of life in Jerusalem? It was when the sacrifices had been made, especially, of course, on the great day of atonement, when the sacrifices had been made, and the priest would pronounce what we call the Aaronic blessing. The Lord bless you, keep you, make His face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you shalom. And if you read through these Psalms again and again and again, those themes of this God-given benediction for His people… God's blessing of His people. These themes keep on recurring again and again and again. And now, in a sense, we've come to the very epicenter of the 15 Psalms. In this Psalm, either written by Solomon, or perhaps, as some have thought, written by David for Solomon as a as a father's instruction, or as a a son's reflection on what it was that the Lord had called him to do in building the temple. And you would have noticed as we were singing the psalm, and again as we were reading the psalm, that there's an almost seamless transition takes place. It seems to begin by thinking about the city of Jerusalem and at the epicenter, the house or home of God that Solomon built for the Lord's presence. And then, as I say, almost seamlessly, the psalm moves from that house to our house, from the house of God in Jerusalem to the household of faith, wherever these households are spread throughout the land. There's an integral connection between the two. And it's very interesting to see into the mindset of the psalmist as he speaks about these things. In verses 1 and 2, he's obviously focusing his attention on the house of God in Jerusalem. Uh, we envisage him, he's, he's in the middle of the festival week. He's been to all the meetings. He's seen the sacrifices. He's been with the people. He's heard the Word of God. He's been, he's been singing the Psalms. And, and you can almost imagine at this point in the pilgrimage, there's a, there's a kind of little pause, uh, maybe time for sightseeing. Uh, he's been so excited to get there. But now perhaps we imagine him on a, a quiet evening and uh, He's gone at the end of the day to look out over the city and to go again to the temple, and it's quieter, and he has time to reflect on these things as he's in the midst of his seeking God's face in pilgrimage. And you'll notice as you, you read these words in verses 1 and 2, that there is a key expression that is repeated. 
That's always an important thing, incidentally, when you're reading the Bible. Uh, The Bible does not have italics originally. It doesn't have red letters, thankfully, originally. It doesn't have blocks originally. So when you see there is a, a repetition, then you can almost certainly tell that's the point the psalmist is making. And you see he's thinking about building the house of the Lord. And he's thinking about the, the sentries, those who watch over the city and who guard it. And he's thinking of those who go outside of the city and labor in the fields to provide for it. And he's saying all of these things are God-appointed means of blessing. But he's warning that if in God-appointed means of blessing you actually forget the Lord, then absolutely everything is in vain. Interesting, isn't it, to think about that repetition in connection with the book of Ecclesiastes, which again and again emphasizes life under the sun without the God who created the sun is like chasing after the wind. All is vanity. It is in vain. Try as you might, you will not find either ultimate meaning or ultimate satisfaction if you begin by saying we're going to work this out for ourselves without God. And that's the emphasis here, isn't it? Unless the Lord builds the house. Now, this isn't saying that we shouldn't engage in building projects. It's saying if God is not central to the task, if His glory is not its goal, if His help is not given, then all the building projects in the world, even the building of the temple, will be utterly in vain. Remember how we find that in the prophets, people going around Jerusalem and saying, but we've got the temple. And the prophet comes along and he says, there you go. He's almost cynical about it. But there's a, there's a godly sarcasm. There you go chanting, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. But you've forgotten the Lord of the temple, and therefore all your worship is utterly in vain. And the same thing with those who guard the city. Um, and you begin to catch a, a sense of the mood here. We have built the temple. We can guard the city. We can work hard and provide for its need. And that, of course, is the point in verse 2. It's not an encouragement of lying in bed in the morning. It's not a discouragement of working well. But it is a word of warning to anyone who thinks that by his or her own labors, he or she can do things very nicely, thank you, without God. And actually what it's doing is hinting, I think, you know, so he gives his beloved sleep. How many of us have used that as an excuse for another half hour in bed. I remember the dearest 
old Irish saint, a man of devoted prayer, who told me on one occasion at an afternoon meeting in the middle of the summer, he snoozed off a little, and uh, the man who was preaching rebuked him at the end, and uh, he just smiled and said, no, no, sir, he gives his beloved sleep. That's not actually what the text means at all. It means what happens at the end of the day when you seek to achieve everything on your own and you have many possessions, you create for yourself many anxieties. I remember many years ago at a lunch hour service that we used to have in the church, I served saying uh, businessmen would be there. I'd say, you know, the one thing I wish I'd done was uh, I wish I could have run my own business. Well, the businessmen were there at the door saying, forget about it, friend. Running your own business, knowing that within a couple of weeks, the whole thing and the people you employ can collapse around you is the best possible means of getting an ulcer, filling your life with anxiety. And of course, that's what happens, isn't it? Um, You drive on without rest in God, and all you create is anxiety. And at the end of the day, he's saying it's all in vain. As the the Scriptures say, you know, think about the rich fool. He's going to build barns, and God comes in and says, this night your soul is required of you. Then whose are these things going to be? You know, you can't purchase the insurance policy that will relieve you ultimately from anxiety. And at the end of the day, it is absolutely all in vain. That's a tremendous word, isn't it, for Christian people today in a self-made world, a self-driven world, a we-can-do-it-without-God world. Yes, but think how brief time is where you think you can do it all by comparison with the greatness and length of eternity. And he's wanting things to be put into proportion here because uh, the psalmist understands the danger. Um, As I say these words, a song of a sense of Solomon may mean that Solomon did write it. If he did write it, there's a, there's a dark shadow here. Or if it's a Solomon psalm because David wrote it for his son, how, how little he could have perceived how much his son really needed this psalm because he did all of these things. And then, so rested in his own strength, the silver and the gold and the horses he amassed that were forbidden of the kings to amass, and the wives. And so it's a very somber thing, isn't it? And interestingly, I think it has a special word. Of course, this was a word for the nation, and the nation was simultaneously the church. That's not true in Scotland. The nation and the church are two quite different communities in the New Testament era. And uh, Scotland is not Israel. 
although some in the past have fancied it might be so. Uh, but there's, there's, a word for, there's a word for our particular nation here, actually an extraordinary word for our particular nation at this particular time, don't you think? Incidentally, this is not a political statement. You know what the old motto of the city of our capital is, the, 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 our capital city in Scotland? Even those of us who are Scots don't know it, and since some of us don't come from Edinburgh, some of us don't care. <laughs> it's the Latin form of the first line of the psalm, nisi dominus frustra, apart from the Lord, all is in vain. And uh, what, what kind of messages are we characteristically hearing in our time in the run-up to the referendum? Well, it's precisely this, isn't it? It's the very things this psalm tells us at the end of the day are all in vain. We can build it. We can secure it. And we can provide for it. But unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord watches over the city, unless the Lord is in the provision that we seek to work for ourselves. It is absolutely all in vain. As I say again, this is not a political statement. This is going to be true in the run-up to the referendum. Alas, it's going to be true. Whatever happens at the referendum, our politicians will still give us the same message. And isn't it fascinating to see how how blind men and women are, men and women of great intelligence and skill and knowledge and influence can be when it comes to this kind of thing. We can do it when all the signs are, and actually subliminally the confession of our politicians is, we are not able to do it. Isn't one of the most significant those of you who are from the other side of the water will wonder what I'm talking about here. Isn't this one of the most significant indications of where we really are that our government thinks every child in Scotland should have a named person to watch over them? Now, what is that saying? That is either saying we're moving into the world of 1984 and Big Brother or it's saying, to put the best complexion on it, we are in a state of such social chaos. Our families are in ruins. Our children are in desperate need. But the one thing we will not listen to is the motto of the city in which our government now and in the future will sit. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. But there is an application to the church, isn't there? Uh, how, how much in our country? You have it in the United States with the mainline denominations. I've been following the stories in these last weeks. The very same spirit. We can do it. We can change the Bible. We can go our own way. We can do it without the Lord. And the amazing thing is this. 
those churches are crumbling into the dust. May I give what may for some of you be a very painful illustration of this, but there are, I think, half a dozen men in this room, even at this time, who have been ministers in the Church of Scotland. I happened to look through the Church of Scotland's monthly magazine the other day, and I was deliberately looking for references to the Lord Jesus. In 64 pages, with all the advertising taken in, there was one reference in an advertisement, a church looking for a minister who would tell them about Jesus. Isn't it amazing that that would even be necessary? And there were six references to him, and one little letter had two of them from an evangelical minister. What's it saying? The church is the big thing. The church can do it. We have been doing it. You can count on the fingers of one hand the number of ministers in the denomination who are under the age of 30. And still no recognition in the publications. We cannot do it, and we need to cry to God to have mercy on us and to build the house Because the truth of the matter is, if you try and build the house without the Lord, without being bowed down before Him, asking Him for His watch care, praying that He will bless the means He's put in our hands to provide for His people and to bring others to Christ, then it's a kind of Ichabod statement, this, isn't it? In vain, in vain in vain. And the rather dark aspect of all this, when we think of this as a Solomon psalm, in whatever sense that means, is that he did build the house, but he did so much thereafter without the Lord and his life and his family became a walking historical disaster. So actually, these verses that, uh, you know, if you've not given yourself to the study of the psalm, you probably often thought, isn't this a wonderful, I just love Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it but it's actually a warning against the futility and vanity of life under the sun without trusting in the sun who created the sun. And the insecurity, you try and guard the city, and it's, it's all in vain. The enemies will come. You need the guardianship of the Lord. And we can do it. I can do it. Yes, you can do it until you drop dead. That's what you can do. And if you drop dead without God, you will live forever in the same sense without God. Death is not a means of converting the soul. And so, against that background, you can just just imagine, here is, you know, here I am a I'm an 18-year-old, and I've, I've reached a certain level of spiritual understanding, and I've, my parents have allowed me to go out and walk around 
uh, Jerusalem at the end of another day of festival. And I've been thinking about these psalms we've been singing, and a lovely tune of 127, whatever it was in Hebrew. Maybe they danced around a little to it. Um, And then it dawns on him. This is the very place where I'm standing tells me that the history of this building is the proof of the absolute infallibility of this Word of God. But then he moves, as I say, almost seamlessly. Or you might think, as some have thought, uh, there's a huge gulf between the first bit and the second bit. Some people have thought these are actually two different psalms that the editor has kind of stuck together with a, an editorial superglue. But there's a deep connection, as we'll see, as he moves in the first two verses from speaking about the house of God in Jerusalem to verses 3 to 5, where he begins to speak about the, the nuclear household, the family of faith. And it's interesting that he seems to work with the same three themes. The establishing of the family, the protecting of the family, and the provision, the ongoing provision for the family. And as I say, there's a very intimate connection between these two realities. Uh, Incidentally, if you want to get married and you've got the papers, there are all kinds of people in this room who can do it for you. And if they do it for you, um, there are certain words that they will say in what is known in technical language as the preamble to the marriage. You know the bit about the Lord sanctifying marriage by His presence at the, at the wedding of Cana in Galilee, and God ordaining marriage for three reasons. And enshrined in those sections are, are this statement, is this statement, that society can be strong and happy. Notice that combination, incidentally. Strong and happy only where the marriage bond is held in honor. When I first, the men who are here, when you first started saying these words, you know, when you were barely out of short trousers as a young minister, you, you, didn't, you didn't think all that much about it. It was so obvious. But you see, that's the connection here. That the church as big family or the nation as family can only be strong and happy. Are we a strong and happy nation? Is the church in the country a strong and happy church? Only where the marriage bond is held in honor. Why is that the case? Because marriage is in a sense after giving Adam and Eve everything around them He gave them each other as the apex of his gifts to human beings. Remember how it's put in Genesis? Actually, it's not so good that he's on his own. It's not that this is 
God saying, you know, I think I messed up a wee bit there, but the way the narrative flows, you've got, you've got man surrounded by all these animals, and there they are marching past. I love to think, I mean, I'd love to be in Adam's mind when the cat passed, and he said, cat, sit on mat, and the dog passed. Dog, bark, and the giraffe passed, and the lion passed, and I mean, just imagine you had the privilege of naming all of these animals. It's just, it's just extraordinary. And, uh, but none of them can be his best friend. And so God creates the woman so they'll be best friends. And he gives them, remember how we saw this? Probably you don't when we were going through the first three chapters of Genesis. He gives them this marvelous task of... Uh, imitating him in a kind of small way by creating other people. You ever think of that if you're a mum or a dad? You need to be a mum and a dad. That's the way you're supposed to be. You've actually created a person who is going to last for all eternity. Nothing else you create is going to last very long. Let me not impugn you. Nothing I create ever lasts very long. But if you're a parent, I mean, just think of this, think of the stunning, no wonder Eve said, golly, I've got a man. Just as, as God had said to the, the angels, letting them overhear the conversation, as it were, in the Trinity, now let's get a man in our own image. And he made him in his image, male and female. And I says, you can do it. You can do it. And this is why the family, the marriage and the family stands at the epicenter of the strength and happiness of human life. And why, think back to these opening chapters of Genesis, why it is that it is the first target of the serpent. He's not, he's not interested in making the lions angry. He's not interested in poisoning the fruit in the trees that God had created. He is interested in destroying this very best gift, the one whom he hates and of whom he is supremely jealous. That's the object of his destructive powers. Destroy this. And so he goes straight for the jugular and seeks to destroy the best. And this is why not only here but throughout Scripture there's such a focus of interest in the family. And you would think, especially against the background of this kind of warning of, you know, if you, if you miss the Lord, then everything is in vain. I think we moderns would like at this point if the psalmist had said, now, I'm going to talk about family life in this context, and here are seven things you mums and dads need to do, and it will guarantee that your children will just be super-duper marvelous Christians. And he, he doesn't really do that at all. He actually doesn't really tell you anything to do. That's the interesting thing. He doesn't tell you anything to do but he describes what happens in the family where there is the Lord's blessing. 
And what he says has actually far more to do with attitudes and atmospheres in the home than it has to do with ten infallible principles to raise your child so that they will serve the Lord. Now, there are plenty of books that will tell you how to do that. Alas, too many of them have been written by people whose children are still 15. And so, they've actually no idea whether all these principles work or not, but they've become gurus. Somebody heard a talk they gave and thought it was really great, and so they've been giving this talk all over the country, perhaps all over the world. And of course, there are instructions. There's the book of Proverbs, the great instruction book for family life. But this is actually about dispositions. It's about how, how do I think about my children? That's a key thing. That's a key thing. Why is this such an important thing today? I was, I was uh, preaching in another part of the country in a group of people who were meeting in a school last Lord's Day morning, and right across the side there, I happily bit my tongue and said nothing, but right across the side, presumably paid for by your tax money, just as billions are put into this, incidentally, in the United States in your tax money, were the words, trust in yourself. We can't get Christ into the schools but we can get this false philosophy, anti-Christian philosophy, into the schools paid for by your council tax or your tax money or whatever it is. The message to the children, trust in yourself. Now, why is that message there? That message is there because apparently the Western world is full of children with horrible self-images. And they're going to end up with even more horrible self-images if they believe that writing on the wall. That's for sure. Now, why are so many of our children in such dire need? Is it because mummy has not said, you are the sweetest little princess? Or because daddy didn't say, you know you can be president of the United States of America. Now, that's probably the worst. You've got to be 35 in order to be president of the United States of America. Even if you mess up, you're going to be there for four years unless somebody gets rid of you. So, in my lifetime, there are going to be, let's say, nine conceivable presidencies I might get. I don't know what the statistical likelihood therefore of you Americans becoming... It's just nonsense, isn't it? It's rubbish, and it's lies. And it's lies. What's it trying to deal with? Well, that's why I say atmosphere and disposition. How do you think about your children? Well, he says, here is the first thing. Children are an inheritance the Lord has given you a reward from Him. Isn't that beautiful? Children are an inheritance that He's given to you. You see, you know, the Bible doesn't need to tell you to do anything to be really practical. You see, I look at my children and I think, help. 
But then I look at my children and I think, in a biblical way, you are the Lord's inheritance. You're actually not mine. You never were mine. You're the Lord's. And that's what makes you valuable. That's what gives you dignity. That's what transforms my disposition towards you. Even in the, even in the small measure, most of us who are parents would, have, would be willing to admit that we had achieved in these things. It's a completely different, it's a totally different view of your children, isn't it? You know, dear ones, if you're young and your children are six or seven, just be careful what you write about them in the Christmas letter. You know, we went through a season where I said to Dorothy, you know, if I get one more of those letters about how marvelously all these children are succeeding, I personally am going to write the Christmas letter that will just reduce everybody to tears. This has been the worst year of my life. The children have been horrible. They've not done well at school. One broke a leg. They just, you know, there's constant noise in the house. But you know what these, you know, so, and as, as you live long enough, you see so many of these Christ, Christmas letters from, and sometimes, actually in my case, mostly from Christians, we're saying, we've managed to do it. See, that's almost as bad as trust in yourself. Our children have managed to do it. They're doing this, they're saying that, they're, you want to say, so what are they doing in 15 years? And sometimes they're not doing that at all. Now, Why? Because parents have seen them as part of the machinery of life and haven't actually had this basic biblical disposition towards their children. I think this just transforms the atmosphere in a home that the children even subliminally realize it isn't that you're big, they're small, you're rich they are poor. You are strong, they are weak. It is that they are the Lord's, and you treat them as the inheritance and the reward. Now, I know there are snotty noses, and there are messy napkins, napkins, nappies. What do you call these things? So long since I changed one. Um, But you see, you, you need something to lift your thoughts so that you that you view your children from God's point of view, don't you? And that, that creates an atmosphere in the home. It really does. And in truth, I suspect, that's what our children breathe in. And I've seen it in so many cases where, for example, there has been a, a kind of private, never publicly voiced in the church despising of the word or, or despising of other people in the, in the church. You know, sometimes you need to watch your children if they're in church. Sometimes the children will come up and say to their minister in such eloquent language, way beyond their own vocabulary, that you know there's only one place they have this. And they're now breathing out what they breathed in from their parents. 
And it's so significant, isn't it? And then he goes on, he says, now think about it like this. He says, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Now, we need Will to help us here, I suspect. But I think the, that what he's trying to convey here may almost be beyond us because we don't belong to this kind of culture. You know, most of us, I don't think. You know, most of you are not going home and playing bows and arrows in the background. And so we might read it, children are like arrows fired from their father's arrow. But he doesn't say that. That's interesting. The father is the warrior. So how are the children like the arrows in the warrior's hand? They're not in the bow. They're not being shot. What's so, what's so striking about them being in the hand there? Um, now, uh, sometimes we think our children really are arrows. Um, did you ever go and see a cowboy in Indian movie? That is to say, a cowboy and Native American movie. Okay. Do you remember how, you know, you, you find one of your friends, he's lying on the front, and there's an arrow in his back, stuck right in his back. You know, he's a stiff. And uh, the, you know, uh, the Lone Ranger or uh, Roy Rogers or John Wayne will say, ah, that's been fired by so-and-so of the Sioux tribe. You think, how do you know that? Well, you know it because of the tip and the feathers in the arrow, don't you? Just like those of you who are fishermen, the flies. There are some great fly makers in Scotland who are known by their flies, you see? And I think that's, that's the sense here. It's when when the father, as the warrior, puts those arrows into his bow and fires them, there's something about that arrow that will make people stand back and say, oh, I see in you the marks of a home and a family where the atmosphere has been trust in the Lord and love for the Lord. Uh, Our second son was here a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago maybe, and Hugh said to me, the next Sunday, he said, I could hardly believe how like you he is. And I'm thinking, like me? He's been away from 20 years, you know. He's he's, he's flown the nest. But, you know, in natural terms, he immediately saw uh, a similarity, the, the Fergusonisms, the, maybe the eyes or the, the disposition or whatever it was. And it's the same spiritually, isn't it? Um, alas, we don't experience this as often as we might, that people recognize which warrior has fired this arrow. And that's what we're really wanting in our children, isn't it? It really doesn't matter what they do, whether they become rocket scientists or trash collectors. 
but that there would be a something about them that bespeaks the fact in their whole being that they have emerged from a home in which they've begun to understand that they are the gift of the Lord and that their parents are, as it were, simply the tenants in their lives to bring them to a position where they can be fired into the world and and they will be forever left with the mark of the presence of God. And this is a word of encouragement for those of us who may have children who have wandered away. You know, they're flying away and the arrow is veering. But they're marked. And God so often uses that mark in later life to bring them back to himself. Must hurry on to the last statement. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. What's this about? Actually, it's about preparing your children for a world in which they will engage in spiritual conflict. It's preparing children for a post-Genesis 3.15 world in which, as the seed of the woman, they will find themselves engaged with the seed of the serpent who will seek to destroy them and he is really saying, they'll not be put to shame. They'll be able to stand. That's what we're training our children for, isn't it? You know, I became weary some time ago with people telling me they were training their children to be leaders. It's always Christians who said that. And I don't know many people who went to Eton and then to Oxford and Cambridge, but I've heard it so often from Christians. We are training our children to be leaders. The Bible never once tells you to train your children to be leaders. The Bible is interested in your children becoming servants. That's what it's really interested in. And no matter what they do, they can serve the Lord Jesus. And if they go forth from this kind of home, how, how blessed they will be. Solomon, Sam, you know Solomon had two names, don't you? And they're kind of woven into this Sam. Uh, Solomon, shalom, peace, well-being. And he missed it. And Jedediah, the one who was beloved of the Lord. And he turned away from it. And so it's good for us as we think about this psalm to to remember that a greater than Solomon has come, isn't it? The one who really is the loved one of the Lord. This is my beloved son. And we can come back to him. We We can even confess to him the the mess we've made of the nation, the mess we may have made of our family, and say, Lord, be gracious to us and give us your peace so that we will become true Solomons, just like yourself. Well, may God bless our families. Uh, We have so many families, so many young children. Um, May this be wonderfully real. 
for our church here, for Grace Church as we move into the future. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word and for its wonderful instruction to us, for the way it draws us into itself and into your presence and and we begin to hear your voice. We, we forget about accents. And we hear your accent. And we pray that you would bring to fruition in our own lives, in our own families. And the families for whom we have a care, if we have no family of our own. In the families in which we are grandparents or even great-grandparents. Bring, bring all this to pass. We pray that the world may be astonished in the midst of all the dysfunction of family life and its collapse when they see what family life centered on the Lord and church life centered on the Lord can really be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.